so good to be here at Free Christian and to see everybody. And I'll say what I said at the first service. First of all, what, a, what an incredible blessing to hear the band this morning. And uh, that second song, new, I'd never heard that before. What a just a beautiful, rolling, joyful sound to that. So we're blessed to uh, have that kind of, it was like a reunion of, uh, of the band. Those are the guys that I remember. Great, great to be together. And I'm grateful to uh, Brian and JP. We're praying for JP that he has a great summer sabbatical and comes back refreshed, renewed for us. And uh, we're blessed to have them. And I'm honored to be invited to, to be back here. Uh, you look good. You look great. <laughs> People have been saying that to me. I think I look good. I do. Um, but it's the way they say it. It's, you look good. You look good. <laughs> Which, you know, means, for your age, and uh, you're not dead, so compared to that, you look good, right? Three seasons in life, childhood, adulthood, and then you get to the point, you look good. <laughs> anyway, no, you do look good, and I look forward to chatting with you after. Yeah. Anyway, it's good to be here. The series of sermons this summer is really wonderful. It's the heart of worship uh, from the Psalms. And I chose this psalm, JP said I could pick the psalm I want, Psalm 51, a psalm of David, a psalm of forgiveness. It's a psalm that I have turned to many times over the years as I have sought the Lord's grace and mercy and forgiveness in my own life. And it just is so rich. We'll just kind of work our way through it. I want to do three things this morning. First, I want to give you a background on this psalm because we know, unlike a lot of the psalms in the New Testament, in fact, most in the Old Testament, most of them, in fact, we don't know why they were written. This one, we know why it was written, and there's a lot of backstory to it. And you're familiar with it to some degree or, or other. David and Bathsheba. It's that story. And uh, we'll, we'll, so I'll give you the background on that. We'll look at the story because it really helps us understand what's going on. In the psalm. And then we'll work our way through it, and I'll make three reflections on it. And then we'll just try to say, all right, what do we do with it? What's the application? How does this help us, this psalm? And uh, as we start, um, let me pray for us. Pray for you and pray for me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've called us together here to worship. We thank you that you have loved us to the cross, as we sang this morning, and that you've covered our sins, and we're thankful for that because there are many. And we pray that Jesus would be our teacher, that you and you alone would be heard and seen this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All right, let's uh, give you a little background on this psalm, a little background on David, too. David was, lived a thousand years before Christ, so that puts him in a chronology. He was the greatest king of Israel. Under his leadership, which was a long leadership, Israel expanded its borders. Jerusalem became their capital. He conquered Jerusalem, took it from a, a Canaanite pagan tribe, the Jebusites. He, the, Jew, he, the Jews had possession of Jerusalem 17 centuries before Islam got there. So just, you know, the debate about who does it belong to, that gives you a little historical perspective on it. And uh, he was an amazing military genius and strategist, incredibly courageous, conquered all of their enemies around them. 
destroyed them. They were brutal, but they were, they were brilliant. And he was not only that, but at the same time, talk about the Renaissance man. He was this incredible musician. He was called, in the scripture, he's called the sweet singer of Israel because he, he, he composed these amazing psalms, most, more than anybody else. Uh, I don't even know how many. Uh, maybe somebody knows that. Anyway, the sweet singer of Israel. And if that wasn't enough, he was not only the leader, the military leader, and the political leader, the king of, uh, of Israel, he was also their spiritual leader. He was the one that they looked to for spiritual guidance. And, and this incredible man, he was so close to God. His heart was so close to, that he was called. God spoke of him as someone who is a man who is after my own heart. God's saying, he's a man like me. His heart is like mine. Imagine that. The only person that that was ever said of in the scriptures. And yet there is a blot on David's life that is so dark, so sinister, so evil, so corrupt, that I'm surprised that it's even in the Bible. But the Bible is totally realistic, and that's why it's true. The Bible is true, not because the church says it's true. It's true because it depicts reality more accurately than anything else. And it's there that we see truth. And, and, and so that's why it's here. But had I been writing the bi biography of David, I probably would have kind of glossed over that chapter because it's not very pleasant. We hide our sins. God reveals David's sins and sometimes our sins too. He knows them. All right, let's make some re reflections. Um, but I'm, I mean, actually, let me give you a little more background. I almost left out an important part. Let me give you a little more detail on the backstory of this, and then we'll, we'll make some reflections. I'm going to read to you, actually, from 2 Samuel, starting in the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, which is really the, the book in the Bible that tells us the most about David. In the spring of the year, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his military commander, out with king's men in the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. That was his first mistake. He should have been with the boys, the soldiers. He wasn't. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. That was a flat roof, okay? Don't think of these New England pitched roofs. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. This man said, the man said, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then the woman went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Probably the worst words he'd ever heard. Probably not the first or the last man to hear those surprising words. I'm pregnant. Then he's got to cover this thing up. So he, Uriah's off, war, her husband. He arranges for Uriah to come back and spend some time, a little R&R, &R, a little leave time with his wife. But he doesn't, with the hope that they'll, he'll sleep with her and everyone will think it's his child. 
But David doesn't reckon with the character of Uriah. He is a man of amazing integrity. He refuses to enjoy the comfort of his wife's arms while his comrades, his, his buddies in the, in, in, the, in the army are out there facing death. And so he says no. David eventually manages to get him home, but he will not even go to his own home. He sleeps out in the field with his, with his soldiers. And, and so David, you know, these things, these things take on a life of their own. You know what they say in Washington? It's not the crime. It's the cover-up. And the cover-up takes on this life of its own. David thinks he's got it covered up. And then he has to reckon with Uriah. And so now it takes a turn to an even more evil, dark, sinister way. He arranges for Uriah to be put in, in an exposed position in the, in the lines of battle. Joab agrees to do this because David's the boss. He's the king. But you read on. Joab was not pleased with this. He went along with it, but he never trusted David completely again after this. And, and so Uriah is killed, mission accomplished, and David, I imagine, goes, Phew, I got out of that one. Dodged a bullet. He may have even said, thank you, Lord, for getting me out of that. I'll try not to do that again. But let's read on. A little more. Just when you think it's all covered up, it all starts to come undone. The end of chapter 11 has this understatement of all time. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then the Lord sent Nathan. Months go by. Bathsheba is blossoming. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's a prophet. When he came to him, he told David a parable because he realized he had to confront David. David's the king. David is all-powerful. David could have him killed. He's got to do this in a way that it catches David. And so he tells him a story, a little parable. And I'll read the parable because, again, I can read it faster than I could tell it. There, was, there were two men in a certain town. One rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger, it says, against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And David springs the trap. I once heard a preacher preach on this text, and he said, I imagine Nathan, this old, aged prophet with a long, bony finger pointing at, at, at David and saying, you are the man, thundering the word, the word of God. I don't think so. 
I think Nathan said, you're the man. And you could hear the trap slam shut. David was trapped. And then David confesses. And he pours out his heart. He says to, to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, and here we have a little hint of the gospel a thousand years before Jesus Christ. The Lord has put away your sin. That's the actual word. It says take it, but the word in Hebrew means put. The Lord has put away your sin. And that's the gospel. Now David doesn't know how this is going to happen. He doesn't know that out of his lineage will come the Messiah. A thousand years later. That's how God does it. He does it through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But there's a, there's a hint here that it's going to happen. That, that God is, is taking David's sin and putting it away. It seems so unfair to Bathsheba, doesn't it? I mean, she's raped. It's not, it's not consensual. He's the king. They're not equals. Her husband's murdered. And the baby that will be born dies. Where's the justice? Well, the justice does come. He's forgiven. His sin is put aside because of the great price that was paid on the cross. Let me just read you a little, a little bit from uh, a book by Richard Foster, 30 plus years old. But Richard Foster writes, at the heart of God is the desire to give and forgive. Because of this desire, he set into motion the entire redemptive process that culminated in the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection of Christ. The usual notion of what Jesus did on the cross runs something like this. People were so bad and so mean, and God was so angry with them that he could not forgive them unless somebody big enough took the rap for the whole lot of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Calvary came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity, and so heal it, forgive it, and redeem it. And because Jesus is in the eternal present, our sins are forgiven, past, present, future, atoned for. And so Nathan says, you're not going to die. God has taken away your sin. And maybe David breathed a sigh of relief right then. Thank you, Lord. But then Nathan goes on to say, but there's still a price to pay. Because isn't, isn't there always a price to pay? Uh, in, the, in the spiritual realm, we're, we're forgiven. In the human realm, there's a cost. There's a price. And in David's case, his children, his adult children from various relationships, are going to do in public what David did in private. His children are going to rebel against him. There will be murder, fratricide among his children. There will be incest. 
They will rise up. There will be rebellion. His son Absalom will try to take the throne from David. David will pay a terrific price for what he did. Isn't it true that our children find a way to pay us back for our folly, for our bad judgment, for, for the bad choices that we make? Children find a way to pay their parents back in many cases, and David's children do too. He doesn't get away with it. He pays a terrific price for it, and you can read about it in the rest of 2 Samuel. Um, all right, all of that for backstory. Let's move on here. Let me make some reflections. Here's the kind of the big idea of what we learn here. Being a Christian does not mean we don't sin and don't feel guilt. We do. Being a Christian means what we do in our relationship with Jesus Christ, how we think and how we feel and how we act about our sin and our guilt. And you're going to see in this psalm how David thinks and how he feels and how he acts in, with a great weight and burden of guilt upon him. The first thing he does, and we see it in verses 1 and 2 and also in 7, is he turns to God. He turns to God. He takes his life out of hiding and he comes in the open to God. He says, have mercy on me, God, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It's on the basis of his knowledge of God's mercy and kindness that he's able to come to God. He knows that God will receive him. And so that's the, that's the first thing, and he, and he longs to be cleansed. Hyssop was a branch, a spongy branch, that the uh, priests in ancient Israel would take. They would dip it in the blood of the sacrificed animal as they were offering, offering the sacrifice, sacrifices, and they would sprinkle that blood on whatever was to be uh, cleansed. It might be an inanimate object. It might be a person. Now, blood doesn't cleanse you. You know, water washes us. But the symbolism was there, that this would cleanse us. It would take away sin, because that animal paid a price. Paid a price for the person's sin. It was a vicarious suffering. And, and it was costly, because the person had to provide that animal out of their own flock. That's money. That's costly. It reminded them, every time it was done, that sin is costly. It always hurts someone. Someone is always hurt. We get hurt. People get hurt. God gets hurt. Society gets hurt. There's a cost to our sin. And so that reminded them. And David, on the mercy of God, he's able to come to the Lord and bring his life out of hiding. You know, it's interesting that often, and I've seen it play out so many times over the years here, that when someone gets in some kind of trouble, maybe moral trouble or something, uh, they disappear from church. Now, you're all here, so you're not in trouble. I'm happy to see that. But isn't it true when people get in trouble, they go into hiding. When, when it, it may not be moral trouble. Maybe just they're going through a very difficult time, but somehow they withdraw. At the time when they need people the most, when they need God the most, it's so easy to withdraw. And, and uh, David doesn't do that. He brings his whole self to the Lord and, uh, and casts himself on the mercy of Almighty God because he knows God is merciful. And we're encouraged to do that too. Come to, the, come to the Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. Come to me. All right. Second thought I want to make here, <clears throat> in addition to coming to the Lord, 
David acknowledges how serious his sin is. He's not going to gloss over this. He says in multiple ways in the, in, the, in the next verses, and I'll read some of them, that he gets it. He knows that what he's done is really, really wrong. He, he says it in verse 3. Um, uh, For I, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. I know what I've done, and I see it. What a, what a vivid psychological description this is. He, every time he closes his eyes, he, he sees Uriah's face. He sees Bathsheba's face. He sees what he did at night when he's falling asleep. All of a sudden, the image flashes into his mind. and he sees it. Isn't this true? You know, I, I think of people, sometimes I think back to people that I hurt. Didn't mean to, maybe, but I hurt them. And uh, I know God's forgiven me. In some cases, people have forgiven me. But I, I still sometimes wince. It comes into my mind. And they're like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Why did I do that? And it's, this is a, a vivid, realistic picture of how guilt works. There was a story, and I won't get into it, but the story just, it was just recently about a man, a 44-year-old man in Northern California, Redding, California, who uh, killed, when he was 19 years old, he killed another guy, teenager, over drug money. And uh, he, he recently went to the police after 25 years and told the police, confessed to him. He had become a Christian. And he couldn't live with the guilt anymore. He said every single day for that 25 years, every minute of every day, he felt the burden of that. And he saw that man's face over and over and over again. And he, it, 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 he probably faced the rest of his life in prison. But he said that is better than what he was going through. That's what David was going through. He says it's before me. And then he says... Secondly, against you and you only have I sinned. You're the one I sinned against. Oh, Bathsheba was raped. Uriah's dead. The baby died. But it's against you, God. My sin is really ultimately against you. And all of our sin is. All of our sin is basically shaking our fist at the God of the universe, right? The God who made us, who gives us everything. And yet we defy him. We break his will, break his law. Turn our back on them. Sometimes we're functional atheists. You know, we just glad we don't get caught by people. We never stop to think, well, he knows. He sees what's going on. And, uh, and, and so he, he says, it's against God that I've done these things. And then, then he says, he, he agrees with God. He says, in, in the rest of verse 4, you're right, God. You're proved right when you speak. You're justified when you judge. I'm not disagreeing with you, God. You're right. You know what the word confession literally means? Our, our word confession, English word confession, is from a Latin word, compound word, that literally means to say along together with. That's what confession is. It's to say along together with God. I'm agreeing with you, God. I did it. I can't, I can't, I can't say, you know, it was a hot night. I mean, what was she doing taking a bath out in the open? I'm a man. 
No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, I'm king. I can do this stuff. He doesn't do that. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't shift the blame. He says, I did it. I did it. You're right. You are right. And then he says, uh, it's deep in me, sin. He says, surely, verse 5, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And, and, and he's not saying conception is sinful or you know, sexuality is sinful. No. He's not saying infants are sinful. No, he's saying there's within us this deep propensity to sin. It's, it's like our default position. It's like the Geico commercial. People sinning, not surprising. It's what they do. What's surprising, right? <laughs> what we do. What we do. It's who we are. It goes deep in us. I remember once uh, someone, it might, it might be someone here, invited their neighbor to church. And I met them. And then uh, saw the person the next week. Neighbor wasn't there. I said, well, how would you know, how'd they like church? Well, they like the music. But they didn't. They didn't like your message. You said that we're sinners. And this, this neighbor said, I'm not, a sinner. I'm not a sinner. And I know what she meant. She's not like David. She's not a murderer. She's probably not an adulterer. But we're sinners. <laughs> we're sinners. You know, I know, we know. And David says, it's deep in me. It's my default position. I'm not making excuses. It's who I am. And then he says, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me with wisdom in the inmost place. In other words, Lord, you taught me right. You, you taught me deeply. You taught me amazing things. I knew better. I know better. I can't plead ignorance. I know. And uh, he agrees with God. He acknowledges deeply his sin. Many ways. So we turn to God, bring our lives out of hiding. We're brutally honest. No denial, no excuses, no rationalizations. We confess. We take full responsibility. And then he switches from that, and that is so heavy and so hard, and it's a heavy message. But he switches from that, and now we start to see some hope. He looks ahead. He looks to the future. That's all past. But now he looks ahead, and he wants a new beginning, and he pleads with God for a changed life. In a new beginning. And we see this. Again, I'll just work through some verses. He says in verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit is our assurance. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God in us. When we receive Jesus into our lives, Jesus doesn't come in his physical presence. He comes by his Spirit and he lives in us. And it's by his Spirit that we know we belong to him. And that spirit guides us, it encourages us, it reassures us, it comforts us. He comforts us, not in it. He comforts us. Um, David is saying, I need that reassurance that I still belong to you, God. That you haven't cut me off forever. And, uh, and God gives him that. He restores. And then he says, not only that, but I need a new steadfast spirit so I don't do this again. So he says that in verse 10. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Give me the moral courage to do the right thing from now on. I don't want to go back 
You know, I think of the great ministry of AA. We've got a lot of folks connected with AA here. That's a great ministry because it surrounds people in, in, who are struggling with alcohol addiction, and it says you don't have to go back to that. We're going to help you. We're going we're to support you, encourage you, be with you so that you don't go back. You, you, you know a little bit of the history of the Israelites, that one of the Jewish laws, and I've mentioned this before, was that they couldn't own horses for the very simple reason they could own uh, donkeys, camels, presumably, but not a horse, because with a horse you could go back to Egypt. It's only 200 miles from Israel to Egypt. That's a long distance. You could ride a horse back there. Probably not going to ride a donkey that far. So you, to ensure that the, that the Israelites would not go back symbolically or literally to the slavery, the bondage they had, they could not have horses. And that's what David's saying. Make me strong, God. You set me free from this with so much pain and anguish. You crushed me out of love, not out of anger, out of love. I don't want to go back there. And it's a strong desire in his part. And then he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want joy to return because God's hand has been heavy on him. Psalm 32 you, you, you just see the weight. He says he feels like his bones are being eaten, almost like, like cancer, it, because the guilt was so heavy on him. Restore to me the joy. I want, I want to be happy again. I want to be happy again. And then he, he, it, it takes a really neat turn here in verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will, t- will turn back to you. Now he's thinking ahead. How God can use this to help other people. That's what we want. That's redemption. When, actually, when, when, our, when our flaws and our faults and our folly and our sins, they actually get used to help someone else. That's, God uses anything. He t- and again, like AA, he takes the folly of, of that person and he uses it to help other people. This is... This, and he will do that. I, what I'm doing now in my work is working with millennials, mostly millennials, microphone, um, <laughs> and, and coaching them, pastors. And they want to hear your fault. They want to hear your mistakes. They don't want to hear the stories of how wonderful Free Christian Church is. It is wonderful. They don't want to hear about that. They don't want to hear about you know, our big budgets and our big programs, all that. No. They want to know the mistakes I made. And there's plenty of them. Because they're going to do it differently. They're not going to try to replicate this. Nothing's the same. They want to know what I went through and how uh, God uses that. And I'm actually writing a book. Kathy is just about done editing it. It should come out at the end of the summer about church revitalization. And a lot of my mistakes are in there. So. Um, my name has been deleted, so they won't know it was me. <laughs> anyway, um, and then finally, we get to the end here, finally. He says, Lord, verse 17, this, the sacrifices, are, are 16, you don't delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God that are acceptable to God are broken spirit. A broken, 
and contrite, humble heart. Oh, Lord, you will not despise. And a lot of hymns have been written with that verse. What he's saying is, Lord, you've forgiven me. I'm, I've re made restitution. I'm putting my life back together. But I don't ever want to, want to forget the depth of this and the pain. I want a little bit of that wound to remain, to remind me what it costs you, other people, myself, to go through this. And so he, in a sense, he walks the rest of his life with a limp, a humility. And, and, and that should be the outcome of, of our, our, our forgiven sin. There should be a humility because we realize we have feet of clay. We can't be arrogant. We can't be self-righteous. We can't be proud. And that's really healthy. It's not neurotic. Some people may say, oh, that sounds so introspective and, and neurotic. No, it's actually very healthy. We, Kathy and I just recently watched Chappaquiddick, the story of Ted Kennedy's uh, accident. And it was an accident uh, on uh, Chappaquiddick Island down uh, Martha's Vineyard, 1969, in which a young intern, political intern, was killed. He got away with, not murder, it wasn't murder, he got away with, maybe, I'm not an attorney, never played one, he got away with at least, I would say manslaughter or negligent homicide. He was given a suspended 30-day sentence for reckless driving and, because it was a cover-up. He was covered up, although everybody knew. But you know, he paid a price for that. He paid a price in his own life his own children, probably an alcoholic, his, his body language, he could, he, he could never look at people when, when he was being interviewed or speak, speaking, his, he always averted his gaze, his face had facial twitches and, and he stammered as he spoke. He lived a tragic life, I think. It's healthy, not neurotic. To live with an awareness of our flaws in an openness. And so David comes to God. He trusts God for forgiveness. He acknowledges his sin. And then he looks for God to redeem all of this and bring good out of it. And God does. You have to read the rest of 2 Samuel. David gets closer to God and his heart becomes more and more reflective. His problems come big time. Can't avoid that, but its heart is even more transformed into the likeness of God. And it ends, uh, it ends as good as it can end for him, but it ends well. All right, what do we do with it? Maybe there's a need to confess. Maybe there's someone that you need to go to and, and, and confess that you hurt them. You know, I've written to people years later, decades later, and apologized. And, and expressed my sorrow for things I said or did that hurt them. And in some cases, they've forgiven me. In other cases, they haven't. But that's all right. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to take that step to right a wrong to the degree that you can. Maybe you need to just bring something out of hiding with someone that you trust, someone that you know loves you so much, and, and someone who will give you that word of assurance that Jesus Christ has forgiven you. Maybe you need to do that. We, we, we need to confess sometimes. Not just something that Catholics do. Protestants need to as well. Maybe 
need to find a way to redeem what uh, God has brought you through so that it can be a blessing to other people and and can encourage them and they can learn like millennials from mistakes you've made. Uh, Maybe you just need to give your life to Christ. That's the start of it all. Ask him into your heart and let him heal, restore, and renew. Amen.